The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. There's two things you can say about the people of Artisan. It's that they're friendly and that they're late. (laughs) Which is why, by the way, we have these special seats in the wings here. Um, Not to penalize those of you who are already here early, um, but because it's much more comfortable for a a late arriver, especially if that person is a visitor, to find a seat in the back. And we make that possible by sitting closer to the front. And uh, the other thing you can do uh, to help with making people feel welcome, by the way, is to park at the back of the parking lot. And um, if, you, uh, if you're especially brave, you can park on South Clinton Ave as well. This will become more of a, a need as the snow falls and begins to pile up because our parking lot gets a little bit tight and you can't see the lines and people park farther apart. And so we like to try to make uh, visitors feel welcome and, and even latecomers feel welcome. So you can do that by where you park and where you sit. And I think that would be a very... Um, uh, Christ-like thing to do, not, not to uh, pressure you too much. But <laughs> well, here we are in the third week of Advent, believe it or not, the third out of four weeks, and uh, it doesn't seem that it's possible that we've made it that far through Advent and that far into December, but we have. And so I want to catch you up. If you haven't been here for the past couple of weeks, very briefly, I'll give you a catch up here. Um, and if you'd like to go back and listen to previous messages, you can do that um, by getting our podcast. Uh, you can subscribe through iTunes and get it on your, your stuff, or you can just listen to the messages in the web browser, whatever you'd like to do, but artisanchurch.com slash podcast. And I know that many of you right now are actually listening to this on the podcast. And so maybe everybody in the sanctuary can say hi to the podcast listeners. Can you all say hi? Uh, They just said hi back, so that's good. (laughs) But um, since you can't catch those up just yet, I'll give you a real brief recap. In the first week, we talked about how um, Advent is the season of waiting and how uh, we we long for the peace uh, and light of Christmas, but we can't truly get there. We can't appreciate that unless we walk through the darkness and sometimes the discord that comes with the season of Advent. That was the first week. And uh, last week, in, this, in the second week of Advent, we, we saw these two seemingly conflicting prophecies about the coming of Jesus, which is, of course, what Advent is, is waiting for. One that said, comfort, oh, comfort my people, and was about restoration and reconciliation. And another which was, that said, who can endure the day of his coming, and seemed to indicate that that would include serious judgment. And we talked about how that's two sides of one coin and, and how God may be calling you toward one or the other of those things during this season of Advent in some ways that perhaps we could um, go deeper with, with one or the other of those ideas. So if you've noticed, the first two weeks of Advent have not necessarily been all that... Um, ex- <laughs> well, I don't know if... Ex- I think they were exciting. I mean, come on. Um, but, you know, they haven't been that encouraging, maybe. They've been a little bit... A little bit dark, but that fits with the 
the first week's message where Advent, Advent is sometimes dark. And if you don't go through that to get to the light, you, you kind of don't understand and appreciate what we're getting to in Christmas anyway. Today, though, the tone, I think, begins to shift uh, more toward the hopefulness that we really are anticipating at this time of year and which we, which we associate with Christmas. Um, what I want to do today is... Uh, a little bit different content-wise and presentation-wise. I want to take you on a historical journey today. Um, and if you don't like history, don't worry, because this is the exciting kind of history. Um, but what, what will happen is this is based on the lectionary readings for today. Again, the lectionary is a, a resource that we use during this time of year and some other times of year to provide us with some scripture verses and passages to start with. And the, it's very, very common for churches to use these during this season of Advent. And so there's going to be lots of story and lots of scripture reading during this next uh, 25 minutes or so. Uh, and you are welcome. I'll, I'll indicate where to find them in the Red Bibles. If you would like to follow along as we get to them uh, in the Bibles under your chairs, you can. But I think today especially you do just fine listening, so it's up to you. Um, the references will be also be on the screen as we go through. So I want to start... Um, a long, long time ago, maybe more than 2,500 years ago. And what I'd like to ask you to do is put yourself into this historical context for a few minutes. And I want you to imagine that you are one of the Israelites, one of the people of God, one of the Jews of about the 6th century before Christ. And so because I want you to imagine being that person, I need to give you some of the uh, factual information and historical background that you would already know as a Jew of the 6th century BC. So you would know the history of your people. You would know how the whole thing started with a miraculous birth. When the, the one true God, that people knew him as Yahweh, promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child. In fact, that they would, they would be the mother and father of a great nation, even though they were well past childbearing age. And you would know that that birth happened, and that that was the start of the fulfillment of the promise which God made to Abraham, which was that Abraham would be the father of a great nation of people, a nation that would be blessed by God so that it could be a blessing to all the people of the earth. And you would also know, as this 6th century B.C., Israelite, the long history of that promise being interrupted. You would know about how your ancestors were uh, captured and enslaved in Egypt. And you would know how they were rescued and delivered by God in, in a great exodus from that country, only to travel and wander in the wilderness for a whole generation before coming to the promised land because they had been unfaithful to God. And you would know how once they entered the promised land, that, that cycle of faith and unbelief and faith and unbelief led to a downward spiral of, of poor leadership and less and less godliness among the people. Because it is hard to stay faithful for very long. And you would know how the nation was first governed by judges uh, a few who were good and faithful people like Deborah, but mostly who were stupid and corrupt people like Samson. 
And you would know how your, your people, your ancestors, had eventually demanded of God that they give you, that he give you a king. And how this turned out exactly as God said it would, with the kings taking the place of God and oppressing their own people. You would know how one of those kings did succeed in building a, a holy temple, a permanent residence for uh, God's localized presence in the community and how that was the center of worship in, in the city of Jerusalem. But you would know how after only three generations of the monarchy, only three kings who themselves only did a, an okay job at being king over God's people, that monarchy split. The sons of that third king had an argument and the kingdom was divided into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And this is, you would, you would know all of this already as a 6th century Jew. And you would know how the northern kingdom of God was, was less faithful to him. And about 150 years ago, if we're imagining ourselves at this time in history, the northern kingdom had, had turned from God and as a result, he had turned from them his favor and they were conquered by the Assyrian Empire. But the south stayed faithful for a while. But it's hard to stay faithful for very long. And so most of all, what you would know if you were a Jew in the 6th century before Christ is that very recently your own southern kingdom of Judah, the last bastion of faithful responsiveness to God, had become faithless too and had been conquered too. Not by the Assyrians, but by the people who came after them, the Babylonians. And many of your close friends and family might have been killed in that conquest. And you had been captured and taken into an oppressive exile in a foreign land. And it's at this point in your people's history that we encounter our first Bible text for today, which is from uh, Isaiah chapter 61. And the prophet Isaiah spoke these words of hope to the people uh, in that state. This prophecy from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me he has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, which is taken to mean Jerusalem or sometimes the whole nation of people, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. And here you couldn't help but think about the fact that the temple that King Solomon had built had been destroyed by the Babylonian horde. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Skipping ahead to verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. 
I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. And all who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. The Lord has anointed me, has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed. That passage begins. And you, as a person in this, of this era in history, would, would hear those words. And, and knowing the history of your people, you would, you, would, you would think, this sure sounds like what we need. Good news for the oppressed. Rebuilding of the ruins. Yes, please, Lord, make it happen. And as an exiled Jew of that era, you would probably return to that promise, maybe every day. That the oppression and the exile would end, and you would be returned to the holy city of Jerusalem, where you believed God's people belonged. So that's the first leg in this historical journey. I want to go ahead in time a little bit, maybe to the time of your great-grandchildren or maybe your great-great-grandchildren, because what happened is that 70 years after the destruction of the temple, it was rebuilt. The exile ended, and the people were returned to Jerusalem. The city was restored. And probably the people of that time felt, then this is, this is the fulfillment of that prophecy that we've been clinging to. This is the good news for the oppressed. But I'm guessing within a generation or so of that, and, and, and I'm, the reason I'm guessing this is because it's the, whole, it's the pattern of God's people throughout the entire Old Testament. And we talked about some of it very briefly a minute ago. I'm guessing that within a generation, the faithfulness that probably sprung up anew in them upon return to Jerusalem, had faded a little bit. I mean, after we have a, a wonderful spiritual experience, we're lucky if it lasts 30 seconds, let alone 30 years. So it's easy to imagine that, that 100 years after the conquest of Judah, the southern kingdom, even though the people were back and had been restored, that, that things were not going so well. Because, again, I will say... It is hard to remain faithful for very long. And so I'd like you to imagine that now you are your great-grandchild or great-great-grandchild and, and you're participating in the life of the community of faith and that one of your musicians, and we need the musicians as much as we need the prophets, wrote a song. And the song that this musician wrote is the psalm that Moody read for us earlier, and I'd like to return to it. It's Psalm 126. It's a short little song. It's very beautiful. If you would like to look at 
in, uh, in the Bible on page 499, you'll see it. And you'll see that under the word Psalm 126 is a little note that says, A song of what? Anybody have it? A sense. Not like I have a sense that something is happening, but the plural of the word ascent going up. Do you know why this is a song of ascent? Let me show you a map of the region. We're going to go from history to geography here. Uh, I promise study hall will come at some point. But, um, yeah, and I don't have, oh, I have a pointer. I get to use the laser pointer. Yes. <laughs> so the, uh, where's the laser pointer? Oh, there it is. So this is the Dead Sea, and this is a topographical map. You can see this is 400 feet below sea level. Do you know where the city of Jerusalem is, where the temple had been rebuilt? Right about here, which is 800 plus feet above sea level. And so the, the people, as they were going to worship in the temple, would be going in what direction? Up, from wherever they're coming. They're going up these hills to the temple and to the great city of Jerusalem. And so this is a song of ascents made to be sung on the way to the temple. And you can imagine these people whose faithfulness had flagged and who had in their the back of their minds the entire history of, of faithfulness and faithlessness and this downward spiral singing this song on the way up to Jerusalem to worship and sacrifice at the temple, remembering the restoration, the end of the exile and the return to Jerusalem. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And it was said then among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we rejoiced. And then there's a little space. And so you know something happens logistically or experientially and, and suddenly the tone has shifted and it says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses in the Negev. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. And so once again, God's people, your people, were looking back on the promises made long ago and longing for them to be fulfilled. It's hard to be faithful for very long. So I have one more leap forward in history that I'd like you to take with me. This time we'll jump ahead a few centuries. Um... A, a few centuries of time, by the way, when, when it may have seemed more than any other time in the history of God's people that God was silent. Now I want, to, want you to imagine yourself that you are a Jew during the Roman era, and you are able to be in your country, but it's under occupation by the Romans. The Romans so far, are slightly better than the Egyptians and the Babylonians, but it's not great. Things are not great. Um, the temple had managed to stay intact during the conquest, but it had been uh, desecrated on more than one occasion. Eventually, it, it was restored. 
but it was restored under the leadership of the Roman king known as Herod. And so he had, as victors are wont to do, uh, named something after himself. He had named God's temple after himself, and now it was Herod's temple. And that just doesn't sound quite right coming out of your mouth if you're, a, if you're an Israelite who's looking all the way back to Abraham. And then Herod had proved to become a, a bit of a tyrant after all, and so it was even harder to call this place Herod's temple. It's hard to stay faithful for very long under that kind of circumstance, and, and maybe not many of them were. But if you were a faithful Jew during that time you might read back the two texts that we have looked at already today and read them in anticipation and hope that, that there will be, as Isaiah, Isaiah said, hope for the oppressed after all. And that, as the psalmist said, that God would restore our fortunes as his people. And now, with all of that history and all of that that those writings and songs and prophecies ringing in your brain, in the present day, suddenly you hear of a new prophet. The first prophet in your lifetime who seems like he might be for real. And he sounds very strange, but he might be for real. This prophet dresses strangely and, and subsists on a very odd diet. He's sort of the, uh, a dirty hippie. <laughs> he probably, whatever the uh, first century equivalent of patchouli was, he probably had that. <laughs> but something has drawn you to what he's, what he's preaching and what he's saying. And so what you do is you send your teachers, the teachers of your synagogue, your religious community, you send them out to ask him what his deal is. And so this story is, is uh, in John chapter 1, page 862 in our reddish Bibles. You know who this prophet was, perhaps? This is the Gospel of John, and the prophet's name is John, but they are different Johns. Chapter 1, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. By the way, in the Gospel of John, if he's saying the name John, he's not talking about himself. If he talks about himself, he usually calls himself the Beloved. Um, <laughs> which is one of those things that he might have meant as a sign of humility, like I'm not going to use my own name. I'm just the, the disciple that Jesus loved. <laughs> um, great guy, though, John. <laughs> There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world, did not, the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. I'm going to jump ahead to... Verse 19, and here's where the narrative historically picks up with what I was just setting up. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. The name of 
name given to the king that they were expecting, the anointed, anointed one. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? By the way, they're so frustrated with his unwillingness to say very much that they at some point get to the the place where they don't necessarily care about the answer except that somebody sent them to get it. And so all they want is something to tell their friends. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. I am not the Messiah, he says. Yet there is one coming after me. And doesn't this just fit with the entire history? I am not the Messiah. Oh, I thought we had it. But there is one who's coming after me. (laughs) Despair and then hope. And not long afterward, in a synagogue in Nazareth, a new teacher stood up and read from the scroll of Isaiah. And what he read was the first prophecy that we encounter today, the one from the 6th century B.C. He read this, and it's recorded in one of the other gospel stories here. I'll just give it to you really quickly, Luke chapter 4. Starting in verse 16, when he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And these words will sound familiar to you as they would have sounded to everyone in the room. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Nothing uncommon yet. This is a teacher standing up in the synagogue and reading from the prophets. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, which is what a Jewish teacher would do when he was getting ready to teach. Sit down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. (laughs) That is something amazing (laughs) for them to hear. After literally centuries of having heard that prophecy read aloud in their gathered community, someone has stood up, read it to them again, sat back down and said, that was about me. And all this cycle of hope and then despair and hope and then despair and faithfulness and faithlessness and on and on. It's getting a fresh coat of paint today because today is the day when that prophecy is fulfilled for real this time. 
And finally, that deep prophecy had been fulfilled. Uh, That is, if you take Jesus at his word, which is, of course, the big question. It was the big question in that moment, and it's the big question now. It was the big question for the Jewish people in the synagogue in Nazareth, and it's the big question for the Gentile people in the church building in Rochester, is do we take Jesus at his word that that prophecy is fulfilled in him? And so now you can take a break from your historical imagination, and you can stop imagining yourself as a person from long ago, an Israelite hoping for God's promise to be fulfilled, and Now I'd like you to imagine that you are a Gentile, a non-Jew, who's been presented with the news of this Jewish Messiah and who has come to believe in him, but perhaps still struggles because it is hard to remain faithful for very long. And so I guess what I'm asking you to imagine is that you are yourself. Because in Jesus, that original promise not even the one given to Isaiah, but the one given to Abraham, that promise that God would make a great nation and bless it so that it could be a blessing to all the other nations of the earth. That promise was fulfilled in Jesus too. And because of Jesus, all the people of the earth are welcomed into God's family, regardless of our heritage. And so it's from that tradition, now the the Christian tradition, that I have one more scripture to read to you today. This last one is is from a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who was the founder of many of the earliest Christian churches. It's a letter written to the church in Thessalonica. These were people who believed in Jesus But you can tell from the words that he writes to them that they were struggling with the tension that we described in the first week, that the greatest moment in history has already happened, but that it is what? Not yet finished. This was written in about 50 AD. So we're talking about maybe 20 years after the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it answers the question that maybe is burning in all of our hearts and was burning in their hearts. How should we live while we wait for whatever is to come? And maybe you today feel tossed about in your faith. Maybe you feel like the people of Israel, uh, that, that it's hard to stay faithful. And if that's you, then this is the passage for you to hear today. Chapter 5, verses 16 through 24. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And by the way, we all talk about seeking God's will for our life, and this is one of the few places in the New Testament where it is explicitly described what God's will is. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise the words of prophets. And the Greek there says, do not despise prophecies. But test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. 
And may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do this. I love that phrase, do not forsake the prophecies. So even these Christians, these post-Judaism believers, even though many of them were Jews, though at this point in Macedonia, there are probably a lot of Greek Christians as well, Gentiles. But even them, Paul is asking them to go back and look at these prophecies and not forget them, not forsake them. Do not forsake the story. Always, always remember what has happened from Abraham to Isaiah to Herod to John to Jesus to Paul all the way up. Do not forsake the story. Tell it to your children. Tell it to each other because we all need to be reminded of it. And maybe most of all, do not lie to each other about the faithlessness of the people of God. Because they always have been, and they always will be, unable to be faithful for very long. And maybe at this point we can shift from they to we. So do not lie about the faithlessness of the people of God. Instead, be reminded and proclaim the faithfulness of God himself. As I've said so many times, it is hard to stay faithful for very long, but Paul says, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do this. See, the the sanctification, the fancy word that Paul uses there, which is just the continuation of your faith, the process of being made holy and set apart and special for God, the continuation of your salvation if you're a person who's already a Christian, that is not dependent on your ability to maintain perfect behavior and belief any more than your original salvation was dependent on your ability to do good and please God. And I think what happens in church a lot is that we are on board with the salvation by faith alone concept because it's pounded into our heads frequently. And we we have this crisis moment and we come to faith throwing up our hands and saying, I can do nothing of my own power to save my soul. And I'm relying 100% on the grace of Jesus Christ. And we have this moment and, and, and we start our faith journey, and from that moment until the day we die, we spend every waking minute telling ourselves that the opposite is true. That now that I've been saved by God's grace, it is up to me to work hard and on my own power do what is right in all things and pray without ceasing and give thanks in everything and abstain from all kinds of evil. And how badly have we missed the point? That it's God's grace that is necessary and required and which supports us through that entire time. I believe that the prophet Isaiah was right, that there is hope for the oppressed. I believe that that hope 
comes in our faith in Jesus. Our trust in the one true God, the Father. And our continuation until the end by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me read those last two verses to you one more time. And I would like to make this a prayer. And so maybe bow your heads and, and prepare your hearts with a spirit of prayer. May the God of peace himself sanctify you, sanctify us entirely. And may our spirits and souls and bodies be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls us is faithful. And he will do this. Amen. Our response to the hearing of those promises, especially the one that is tied up in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, is to come to this table of communion and celebrate together his sacrament. And if you are a person who is clinging to those promises, who is looking back through the whole history of the people of God and looking back through the very short history of your walk with God and looking ahead to however many days you may have left, perhaps with fear and trepidation because you feel the oppression of the evil around you and your own tendency towards sin. If you are a person who is clinging to Jesus in the midst of all that, this is the place for you to, to go. And your invitation to come to this table and receive his body and blood broken for you, shed for you, and for the sins of yours and many. That is not dependent on your membership in this church or in our denomination. Um, it is dependent only on your faith and belief in Jesus and your desire to follow him. And so we're going to continue to sing and worship God in that way. But at this moment of worship, I invite you to come to the table, if that describes you, and respond. You can dip a piece of the bread in the wine or the juice. We have, the, again, the, the gluten-free option for those who have sensitivities in that way. Um, and if you'd like to get your children and have them take communion with you, that's okay to do here as well. You can get them afterward if you prefer. Um, and as always, it's okay to sit and think and pray. If this is not what you feel would be the best response for you today. But I would ask you that you would respond in whatever way God might be leading you today as we continue to worship him together.